Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Good day, Murkada Nesa, bienvenue, caribou, and thank you for joining us online today. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the launch of a new extended policy brief on girls' education and language of instruction. This has been produced by the University of Bath Department of Education, the Institute for Policy Research, and in collaboration with the Girls' Education Challenge. My name is Dr. Lizzie Milligan, and I'm a reader in the Department of Education at the University of Bath, and I've co-edited this brief, as well as leading the research on an ESRC-funded project in Rwanda that you'll be hearing some more about shortly. Dr. Leila Adamson, who co-edited this brief with me, sends her apologies, but she has an excellent reason for not being here today. Um, she gave birth to a beautiful baby girl just this morning. So moving on to the policy brief itself. We know that Sust Sustainable Development Goal 4 calls on all governments to ensure that by 2030, all children complete a basic education that is inclusive, equitable, and of high quality. Well, a lot of research has explored the ways that factors such as gender and language of instruction have separately um, presented a challenge to children's enrollment, learning, and outcomes in education. There's an evidence gap about the influences of gender and language together specifically how girls are affected by learning in an unfamiliar dominant language such as English. This of course has clear implications for efforts towards SDG 4 and SDG 5 which calls for gender equality and empowerment for women and girls. And the key message um, that we would like you to take away from this policy brief is that language of instruction must be considered as a policy priority if we are to enable all girls to progress in quality, equitable education. Our policy brief includes findings from across Africa and draws on a range of evidence to bring new insights into this relationship between learning in an unfamiliar language and girls' educational experiences and outcomes. In the brief, we have some quantitative evidence. We have some girls' um, stories. We also have some reflections from practitioners alongside significant evidence from different projects within the Girls' Education Challenge, which you'll be hearing about today. As you can see on this slide, we've got a huge number of contributors and I'd like to thank um, all of them for their contributions. And also to all the young people, teachers, parents and guardians who also contributed to the research shared in this policy brief. It's really wonderful to have um, some of the contributors with us today to share um, some more from, from what they've added to our policy brief. Firstly, you'll be hearing from Aline Doramana and Aloisi Uweza Yamaria, who are at the University of Rwanda. And they've both been research associates on the ESRC project I mentioned earlier. And they took a leading role in the school-based qualitative data generation in four schools across four districts of Rwanda. You'll then be hearing from Fadamata Inaren, who is an education technical advisor within the Care USA Education and Adolescent Empowerment Team, 
She has nearly 20 years of experience working at various levels for different INGOs, bringing expertise in girls' education, gender mainstreaming, governance, and accountability mechanisms. And then finally, from Amira Salama, who's an academic English instructor at Nile University in Egypt and is president of the Africa English Language Teachers Association. And just before I hand over to my co-chair and co-presenter, um, Alicia Mills, I just wanted to note that our policy brief is dedicated to Professor Audrey Musamanga, who sadly passed away last year and is dearly missed. As I mentioned earlier, we are really delighted to be launching this brief together with the Girls' Education Challenge. And I'll now hand over to Alicia Mills to continue our introduction. She is the Senior Portfolio Advisor for Somalia, Kenya, Malawi and Ethiopia at the Girls' Education Challenge. Thank you so much, Lizzie, um, and good afternoon, um, and a good morning and good evening to everyone. Um, uh, so what we're going to do now is just look at some of the findings that came out of um, a deeper dive into this area across the Girls' Education Challenge, um, and then look at some of the emerging findings and trends and themes across the whole piece um, that you can read a, a, lot, a lot more about in the brief itself. But before we do that, I'm just going to very briefly describe um, the Girls' Education Challenge programme, perhaps um, if we have colleagues, participants with us who are less familiar. Uh, so the Girls' Education Challenge, which we often shorten to the GEC, um, is a 13-year 855 million pound investment by the UK government. Uh, it began in 2012 and it will end in 2025. Um, so across that period, we do have a huge amount of data and insights um, and, and evidence to draw upon, which is which is why this, this partnership is so, so interesting and exciting to all of us. Um, it is the largest global fund for girls education, reaching over 1.5 million of the most marginalized girls in 17 countries across Africa and Asia. Um, it includes 41 projects, um, some of whom you'll be hearing from today, um, a great variety in implementing partners, um, and also the size and scope of the projects. Um, but what they've all got in common is that they aim to support the most marginalized girls, either those girls who've never dropped, never been to school, um, girls who've dropped out, girls who may be enrolled in school, um, but are at risk of dropping out. Um, and we work really closely with a whole range of uh, people, schools, teachers, parents, obviously girls themselves, communities, governments, to address all these very different constraints uh, which also intersect with each other, and that is something that we'll be talking about today. Um, so one of these constraints is low proficiency in, in language of instruction, and this is something that we were really interested to look at because the GEC is very much focused on supporting girls to learn in school sometimes before school as well, but we we learning has always been a, a really core focus of the program. Um, and, and additionally, the literacy, numeracy, and the other skills that girls need to be able to transition from level to level. Um, and we knew from our experience across these projects um, that, that girls do sometimes struggle to understand the language, that sometimes teachers struggle to, to use skills within classroom settings to help girls to follow, to follow lessons. And often that's because of a, a sort of mismatch between the language spoken at home and at school, and sometimes difficulties in understanding what's happening within school. We also knew that many projects kind of 
felt this mismatch and felt this constraint every day and already had deployed many different strategies um, in approaching ways to help teachers and girls and, and sometimes others too who will come to, to to be better supported to be able to grow that proficiency. So hopefully today we can be drawing on um, drawing on some of those experiences as well. Um, something that that we knew is that Yes, exclusion happens before the point at which you get to school, but it also happens within school. And we were really interested in working with Lizzie, Layla and others to understand how those processes of exclusion operated. Um, and something I really liked that you can see in the executive summary is a description of how sometimes girls with this low proficiency in the language of instruction are, are physically included, but epistemically excluded. And I, I really like that succinct way of putting it. Um, and of course, this focus on gender in the brief is extremely important important to the GEC for obvious reasons and we wanted to know what we could learn from this. So before going into the learnings that we found from the GEC, um, something to note in itself an important learning is the diversity and uneven distribution of girls' confidence in the language of instruction. So you look at Nigeria versus Ghana or girls in Nairobi versus the rest of Kenya across the GEC, so our findings cannot be universally applied to every girl, but there were some really strong, strong themes. So the first one is around language as an additional barrier and how it intersects with and compounds the other barriers that we experience. Um, if you wouldn't mind just going back to the um, the slider around the GC. Wonderful, thank you. Um, so, so this was something really important that, that we found when looking at all of our data. So we have many other barriers, high household chores, um, complex um, attitudes around gender and education, um, serious financial barriers. We all know that the constraints are multiple and different, but we, we saw that language instruction um, really compounded some of those. So to, we, it's difficult for us to separate it out. It's part of a, a bigger picture. Um, the second point is that when we looked at our data, this is evaluation data across all, all projects for which we had that baseline, midline or endline data, we saw a association between unfamiliarity with the language that was being taught in school, being in, used as the LOI in schools, with, with, with three areas, with, with dropout, with attendance, with learning, and actually with transition too. Um, so we found, for example, that um, in, in our projects in Ghana, girls who reported understanding the LOI in Ghana attended school 95% of the time. Girls who did not understand that language were attending around 75% of the time. Um, and we have sort of similar data that shows some of those fairly large gaps in terms of learning and transition too. Um, the third thing is that just as we I found a real diversity in girls' understanding. We also saw um, real diversity in ways that teachers sought to address uh, these low proficiencies. Um, really differing practices and also differing attitudes, interestingly, and that echoes some of the work across, across other chapters in the brief. Um, we saw teachers across the GEC code switching. We saw teachers being um, highly supportive of, yes, the language of instruction, but also local languages too. We saw some parents deeply appreciating when teachers use local languages, such as in Ethiopia, for example. Um, we saw sometimes that low fluency of teachers in English um, could be a constraint, such as in um, parts of Somalia, for example, but also a difference in teachers' skills in managing a multilingual classroom and transitioning between languages. Some really excellent work done by GEC projects in supporting teachers to be able to, to, to help children transition in that way. Um, and in other areas, some more limited skills that we can now build on. Um, and we also found, looking at the data, a, a common theme around the role of 
a parent. So when parents held positive attitudes towards girls' education in general, we saw a positive association with literacy in the LOI. Um, an example of this is in, in, in Kenya, um, with one project, the Leonard Treasure project, where we saw a, a really, um, girls much, much more fluent in the language of instruction when their parents had supportive attitudes overall. And then finally, uh, this kind of exclusion extended to girls' inclusion in school in general and to social inclusion in other parts of their lives. So for example, um, some girls with low uh, proficiency in language in instruction also holding cultural identities, uh, communities that were viewed sometimes by people within the school as ineducable or part of a wider process of discrimination associated with language and lineage. Uh, my colleague from Somalia may talk a little bit about that. Um, we also saw in many other projects um, that, that there was a, a sometimes an association between low self-esteem and limited understanding of English. So it allowed us to broaden how we thought about um, social exclusion overall. So. Um, Really, uh, overall as a program, we found that there was a huge amount going on to adapt to these barriers and to address them. Working with teachers, parents, school stakeholders, um, important strategies we deployed with things like remedial education, um, teacher training specific to addressing language instruction issues, um, and then other strategies such as uh, one project in Ghana um, that brought on language assistance, teaching assistance in the classroom for those girls particularly struggling. So, if we can just come to the next slide, uh, we found that these findings were really echoed across the contributions in other parts of the brief. Um, so I'm just gonna summarize these very briefly and then we're gonna hear from colleagues who'll take a, a deep, deeper look at them. And I think, firstly, it's important just to note that most of the data in this brief does not directly compare um, girls and boys, but what it is, is doing is finding is significant differences and sources of inequity amongst girls. Um, and, and that's something that's quite important to just briefly acknowledge. And, and there is actually um, a UNESCO report, it was published last month, around the disengagement of boys, that also acknowledges the role of language um, here in, in, in terms of how it intersects with disadvantage. Um, that, that's quite, quite good to look at, I think. Um, this first finding is around this, this theme, around how some girls are affected by this unfamiliar language more than others. Um, we found in one project in Ethiopia that the girl's geographical location and also her home situation in various ways made a huge difference, uh, a huge difference on, on how she was able to deal with language instruction in the classroom. Um, Within the brief, you can see a typology that Lizzie has developed that looks at how different categories of girls are very differently affected. So girls who are at risk for multiple reasons, girls who are at the tipping point of, about, of being excluded because of uh, the contribution of, of low proficiency in, in the LOI, um, it can, are kind of categorized in different ways um, through, through some, some really great vignettes that you can go and read. And I think this typology sort of really illustrates how different girls are differently affected. And perhaps this could be a good way for practitioners to disaggregate uh, girls in general in this way. Um, the second finding that you'll see across the brief is around the criticality of the role of teacher. Perhaps unsurprising, but really detailed in lots of interesting ways in this briefing. Um, strategies around silencing girls, 
um, accidentally or sometimes intentionally teaching more to the girls with higher proficiency in language of it um, of instruction and therefore uh, leading to some exclusion. Um, assuming that language of instruction is a proxy for high performance in general. Um, there's some interesting work uh, that Leila uh, did around um, with secondary schools in Tanzania, um, looking at how teachers direct some of their teaching to specific girls with, with, with better um, language skills. Um, but also many instances where teachers adapted to multilingual differences. Um, uh, Somjet T, a GSE project in Somalia, has a great spotlight story around the, the support they gave to teachers in building those literacy skills. And then finally, a key finding from the brief is around the way um, that gendered sociocultural norms really very, very strongly um, are important on influencing whether a girl thrives in educational settings or not. And, and uh, this is this is something very familiar to anyone working on the GEC and in girls education more broadly, I'm sure. But this brief is is really interesting in finding that substantial evidence between the intersection of the norms and language and instruction issues. Um, something that struck me is that is a piece by Dr. Sane, which looks at uh, the way that girls who are struggling with the language of instruction in Maasai communities in Tanzania also are affected by norms around whether they can actually interact with adult men. So we need to think about those two things uh, together rather than discreetly. Um, we also found across the GC and elsewhere that the gender dynamics at the household level around chores and chore burden and unpaid caring work, how that affects time, and that correlates with also ability to, to learn the language, to improve, to expand those skills and to be able to go beyond safe talk in the classroom. Um, yeah, so with that, um, I hope that you'll find those key findings. Um, you're going to see my, many, many more of them um, as other colleagues speak, but I'm now just going to hand back to Lizzie, um, who'll show us the, that recommendation slide as we move to the next section. Thanks, Lizzie. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you for engaging so much uh, across, across the whole brief. Um, I just wanted to um, finish with just a few recommendations, um, both for policy change and also related to future research. Um, so across um, the brief in the executive summary and in our conclusions, we really highlight these two things. So the first is that we argue um, it's important to consider language of instruction in the design of any girls' education initiatives. And there's very clear examples of how um, the GEC have done that. Um, we argue that both uh, students and teachers require language-focused support um, and training, um, whether that be in the language of instruction itself or in different language-supportive um, methods that, that could be used in the classroom. And the interventions um, should be underpinned by understandings of classroom and sociocultural context and girls' holistic experiences. So um, it's really important for us that we're, we aren't just highlighting the educational um, aspects of all of this, but we're also really thinking about girls' holistic experiences. And there's really nice examples um, around kind of girls' shame um, and lack of confidence, which are really important parts of their educational experience. Um, and then we've just got a list of some future kind of research recommendations. So we suggest that any projects or kind of national or international assessments um, could consistently gather data relating to language. So we have much more um, evidence to be really looking at. We think that there's still a lot more work and we're excited to see how we can continue to work together with the um, GEC, looking at further synthesis of the language related data across their 
girls' education, but also if there's other people here who are who work on girls' education projects who have some interesting language-related data, please do um, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, we suggest the greater role for young people's voices in research. That comes through very clearly in the brief, how, how important it is to really speak to girls about their experiences of language. Um, and to prioritize the inclusion of researchers who share familiar languages and life experiences. Um, that came through incredibly clearly for us in our um, random work from the colleagues that you're just about to hear from. Working with Aline and Aloisi has made a really big difference to the, the quality of the research we've been able to do there. Um, and just finally, um, we're talking here very much about monolingual um, policies, but we would always want to prioritize and advocate for the development of multilingual and language supported pedagogies um, and the ways in which those can be brought into some policy um, change. So on that note, I'm just going to move over onto some other slides and see whether Aline and Aloisi um, are with us and ready to hand over to them. Aloisi, ready when you are. Yes, uh, I am ready. Thank you very much, Dr. Lizzie. Thank you. Um, uh, on, uh, regarding the project you participated uh, in, um, a case study of girls' education experience in English medium, Rwanda basic education, um, we are going to share with you why we chose Rwanda and girls, um, how data were generated, and some of the key findings uh, from the research. To start with, uh, why? Why Rwanda? Why girls? You know that Rwanda has been ranking high uh, on quality and equity and gender promotion. When you read different reports, Global Gender Gap reports, World Bank reports, many reports. Uh, looking at its ranking of, over the past years, yeah. it's um, a review of the constitution and uh, compliance with um, 30% quota for women in elected position, positions. And um, the fact that it has the highest representation of women in the parliament, nowadays we have 61.3% of the seats they are held by women. And this implies, involved, uh, it, it has led to the review of registration and gender sensitivity in the review of registration to cater for equity, um, uh, social justice, fairness, and so on. Um, regarding education, Rwanda is uh, seen as a success story for gender uh, promotion, girls' promotion, uh, the promotion of girls' education. And the enrollment rate for girls in primary and lower secondary is higher than the enrollment of boys in Rwanda. So that is the first reason why we chose Rwanda. The second reason is that it has. It is using English as a medium of instruction from uh, primary one of schooling. Um, to explore the experience of girls' education in English medium of instruction, we proceeded by we we analyzed statistically uh, primary six and senior three examination results, national examination results. We also selected some schools, four schools in four districts. The, 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 the selection criteria, the criteria being dictated by the differences in terms of gender uh, and, and education. Um, 
We also had narrative interviews with 40, 45 case study girls. We selected 48, but three did not participate for different reasons. We, we had interviews with 45 case study girls from those schools. We observed four lessons in each level at, in each school, four lessons in P6, four lessons in senior four, and uh, we video recorded them. We also had narrative interviews with uh, eight teachers, the teachers that we, we observed at each school and the head teachers of those schools. Um, after that, we analyzed data thematically and came up with typologies. We grouped those case study girls based on the uh, achievement by uh, the, the English achievements, likelihood to drop out, attendance, classroom participation, and home burdens. Then we come up we came up with uh, some typologies that Aline is going to to elaborate on. Key findings. Then, generally speaking, some of the key findings suggest that there is a high pass rate in English for P6 girls and boys alike, but the majority are getting a low uh, pass grade. The majority of them uh, in senior three lower secondary, the, nas the national exam in English, approaching half fail the English national examinations. And girls, um, boys are outperforming girls. Girls are more likely to fail than boys. And we have observed a clear divide between the performance of girls in Kigali city and those who are living in other districts in the rest of the country. Uh, to elaborate more on those girls in Senior 3, Aline is going to share some of the findings in Senior 3. Over to you, Aline. Thank you, Aroisi, for the, for the speech. So regarding the findings in the lower secondary education, we have found um, multiple overlapping burdens at home where girls have more responsibilities than boys. And consequently, they are late to school, sometimes they are absent and they don't even get enough time for their homework, which lead them to, to the risk of repeating. And sometimes it's difficult for them to get the transition. So other burdens such as cores, home cores, insecurity of the home and financial challenge, which affect girls than boys. And these challenges also lead them to irregularity at school. Also, these girls um, were found uh, role participating in the classroom due to the culture that silenced them. Uh, they are fearful and they are even ashamed to speak. And this, is, this becomes worse when they have to speak in English, which is not their mother tongue. So we can generally say that English is an additional burden on top of already very heavy load. So like Aroyes mentioned, based on the performance of girls likelihood to drop out attendance and participation and even home burdens, we grouped these girls into five typologies, namely uh, girls that are at risk, girls uh, at the tipping point, girls going against the odds, girls using multiple strategies, and girls that are teachers' favorites. 
if I can try to explain one example of girls at the tipping points, these girls are just passing in, in English and they are at the middle of the road, sometimes engaged in the classroom, even talking in the classroom. Uh, they actually participate in the classroom medium to row and they are partially engaged. In the classroom, they try to, to raise their hands up just to respond to questions which are short, uh, questions which are crossed. And generally they don't take risk of developing their language through providing wrong answers or summarizing uh, or asking questions because they're afraid to speak in English. Consequently, they lack opportunity to develop that language. Also, these girls rely much on code switching of their teachers from English to Kinyarwanda, and even they get opportunity to, to get the explanation from peers to help them understand what they are not able to understand from the teacher. In fact, we can say that English has a significant impact on these girls and may enable them to progress their schooling. So if I can uh, reflect, my own reflection is not different from um, um, this girl's experience because uh, when I was in the primary six, I remember that I have, I had many responsibilities at home um, due to the housework or uh, those girls' responsibilities at home. So I was uh, at the school when I, I was in P6, of course, I was placed in the front desk to maximize my learning at the school because my teacher uh, was aware that I cannot get enough time at home to revise my lessons. So he made, she made, she used it to make sure that I'm really uh, maximizing my, my learning at the school. So I was confident of speaking the language in the, I was not confident in speaking the language of instruction, which was French, because I could not get opportunity to practice French at the school because I had the habit of responding question using both English and the, uh, using both French and Kinyarwanda. It was accepted. Even out of school in my circle, none, none could uh, uh, encourage me to speak using uh, any other language than me. Uh, Kinyarwanda, which silenced me for long, and this has followed me even up to the university. It was actually impossible for me to speak both languages. So I uh, maybe Aroisi can also share her reflection. Over to you, Aroisi. Thank you very much, Aline. My uh, my reflection is not uh, different from yours, and it's not different from the girls that we have investigated. Do have uh, um, had interviews with. Because it same as okay, I was like in primary. I was learning in Kenya Rwanda. That was my mother tongue, and French was a subject. It was not easy, uh, difficult for me to learn all the subjects. I mean, all the the the, the, the lessons in Kenya Rwanda. But still, I had more responsibilities than my my brothers, which prevented me from having enough time to 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 do some exercises in secondary. I was supported. I had enough support by my uncle. I had someone educated. I was uh, home burden free. I was living in Kigali, but my big burden was to, to learn everything in French. 
and uh, because I couldn't understand what the teacher was teaching me, I, I, would, I had no access to, to knowledge. I had to rely on my uncle who had to support me at home, explain everything, and I had to write the explanation in Kinyarwanda. And whenever I was revising, I had to read in French version and Kinyarwanda version to understand. So I learned like that, but with that support, I managed and uh, passed successfully. In higher learning, it was another issue because I was a mother now with uh, three kids. So uh, home burdens and responsibilities were heavier because okay, living with your husband, who is a boy, who they don't feel responsible for most of the home activities. It was not easy for me, even if I was learning in English as a medium of instruction and French, because it was a transition to depending on the teacher when the lecturer was a, fr a French speaking person, he had to or she had to teach in French. When we had a lecturer uh, who uh, could uh, use English, we had to learn in English. At that stage, I was at, at least a bit mature, it was okay. But the most issue was that I couldn't have time. I had to spend night revising because I had a vision. I want to, to, to be self-reliant in the future. I, 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 I passed successfully, but with much, many difficulties. Another thing I, I realized that at, in higher learning is that women were underrepresented. From primary, many, many girls. Secondary, yes, they were there. And at university, there were very few. I was the single girl uh, in the, the combination, uh, same class with 15 boys. So this was um, maybe I was thinking, oh, these burdens are just uh, oppressing some girls. They are not accessing. This is uh, some reality even here now in academia. When you look at uh, women, girls in academia, they are very few, very, very few, which shows that there's a problem with um, equity, equitable inclusion. So I can conclude that for reaching equitable inclusion, we need much more uh, attention, greater attention and support. Uh, we need to listen to girls. We need to, work, to know what is happening to them. And um, we need to build from a solid foundation, uh, maybe think of the long medium of instruction for Rwandans, which is, uh, um, which is a, a language that is they're not familiar with when we are having one language across the country which can help us to which can help our girls to access knowledge easily and of course learn foreign languages because we need them as subjects and as they grow at a later stage they can uh, advance in uh, uh, this uh, international languages thank you so much for your kind attention thank, thank you, you. Loisy. Thank you to um, Aloisi and Aline, both the reflections that they, they just gave and also the research. Um, they have co-authored two different contributions to the policy brief. So please, when, when you um, take a look at the brief, you'll, you'll be able to see that. I'm now um, going to hand over to Fadamata, who I believe might be having a little bit of um, connection issue. So we may not be able to see Fadamata, but we've got her slides. So over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lizzie. And thanks for... Uh, can, can I just check that you can hear me well? I can hear you perfectly. All right, thank you. Um, I really pray that I can go through the presentation without 
oops, did I drop? Oh no, still here, okay. <laughs> Uh, yes, just praying that I can go through the presentation without any um, internet or electricity challenges. Yes, so my name is uh, Fadimata Inoren. I'm part of the CareUSA education team as an education technical advisor. Um, and uh, before I start, I would like to thank um, University of Bath and uh, um, the Girls Education Challenge uh, fund manager for the opportunity for care to present um, the findings and learning from our work in Somalia. So quickly, uh, a quick um, overview of the linguistic context of Somalia, Somaliland. Um, if in case you are, you, you are familiar with Somalia, you might think that Somalia is one nation um, speaking the same language, which, which is the Somali language. But actually, um, as you work through Somalia and um, uh, and get to to, to 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 know more, you realize that actually um, it's not as uniform as as it looks. Um, we have the northern and central Somalia part, um, which is inclusive of Somaliland, Puntland, and Galmudug, where CARE has been implementing one of the FCDO-funded uh, projects for for uh, almost ten years now where um, the Somali dominant language called Afmahatri um, is, is largely spoken. So it's a mother tongue for children for the majority uh, of the population there. Um, and also uh, most children attend the Quranic schools, which are the, the, the schools uh, informal setup where children start to memorize Quran um, and also start decoding the Arabic language. Um, and when they start, and that, that's at a very early age, some of them from age five to up to age 10, keep, even after enrolling in school, they still continue going to Quranic school and learning Arabic and Quran and how to read. Mahatri, dominant language, is the language of instruction. And that's the case up to grade eight um, in most of the formal uh, schools. Um, and English is, uh, is, a, is, is taught as a, as a subject. Uh, um, in, uh, at those grades level. Um, but it becomes the major of instruction once a learner transition to secondary uh, uh, level. Um, so that's, that's a majority, the vast majority of Somalia, Somaliland. But then you have the southern part of Somalia where in addition to the Afmahatri language, which is the official language of instruction, even in the southern part of Somalia, you also have the coexistence of different, uh, I will not say dialect, some of them are dialect, but some of them are different languages like the Afmahai language, for instance, which is made, uh, spoken by um, what, what is referred to as historically marginalized groups like the agriculture clans, um, the Bantu minorities in the Southwest, uh, for instance. Um, and it's a majority language in some of the states we operate, like for instance, Banadir state, Jubaland state, uh, and uh, and, 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 and the Southwest state. Uh, and Afmahatri, as I said, is still the, the language of instructions um, in, apart from Southwest region uh, where, where, where um, it's not. So um, CARE has been implementing two projects which are both part of the GEC uh, uh, pool fund. 
Um, one of them is the Somalia Girls Education Promotion Project, which has been operating uh, um, uh, since 2017 and just, and just closed recently um, and has been operating in southern part of Somalia, uh, sorry, northern central part of Somalia, Somaliland, Puntland and Galmudug uh, regions in particular. And as part of the Girls Education Challenge, uh, um, objectives, the project was focusing on improving learning outcomes and improve positive transition among marginalized girls in rural and remote areas. And the project impacted 37, more than 37,000 marginalized adolescent girls uh, age 10 to 19. Um, and the other side, in the southern part, uh, the sister project of the SOMGFT, which is part of the Leave No Girl Behind initiative, start, uh, um, the AGES project, uh, started in 2018 and is still going on. And this one focuses more in the southern regions, Banadir states, Hirshabele, Jubaland, and south, southwest states. And it's more focused on highly marginalized out of school girls, older, as you can see age brackets between 15 to 25. So some of them are already married young women out of school girls who are highly marginalized, offering them, unlike the SOMGFT, offering them different um, education pathways in addition, to, um, in addition to the formal education for some of them, uh, but more focusing on providing them non-formal education and alternative uh, education pathways, which SOMGFT did as well. Uh, but this one is really has really been um, trying to get uh, marginalized girls and supporting them. Yeah. Uh, so quickly, uh, what's different between the, the two projects? The SOMGFT project in particular try to focus on helping the acquisition of English language uh, and helping learners prepare the transition to secondary because what the project had, uh, 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 found out was that um, the acquisition of, of, of learning um, at the earlier grade, as I mentioned earlier, was not an issue um, because of the fact that uh, education uh, um, is done in the uh, Afmahatri Somali language, which is the mother tongue for learners, um, but also um, uh, English is just a subject. Uh, but then uh, uh, as, as, as learners uh, are expected to transition to secondary and completely shift to English, the project found that, for instance, at the baseline, 72% uh, of the girls who were in grade six already um, had uh, the same English skills and level of, of comprehension of English as a grade two student. So this is not setting, setting them up for, for success once they transition into secondary language. And while girls had a certain level of mastery of, of English, uh, once they move um, to higher reading comprehension level where higher thinking is expected, they start failing. And what we found is the main reason is teachers themselves are struggling with English uh, in this context. Um, because, of course, English is not spoken in the communities. The contact with English is only, remained, is only at school. So once both teachers and learners leave school, there is no contact with the English language. There are no reading materials. There are no books available. There are no libraries. There is no literally spoken English on the TV, on the radio. It's all in the Somali language. Uh, so what did the project do? The project tried to be really purposive when it comes to English uh, uh, as, a, as a major of instruction. 
developing training models for teachers, providing in-service training for all the teachers, um, trying to really explain to them how to help learners develop language, building on what the language they know, like the mother tongue, and then slowly helping them progress from one level to another, and then encouraging teachers themselves to further practice their English skills, get more exposed to English, um, and then also encouraging them whenever possible to, to, to enroll in any opportunities, including online or, or, on, their, or on their phones. Um, the project also went beyond the, uh, the first of in service trainings uh, and provided uh, um, uh, classroom-based personalized coaching to most struggling teachers, um, as well as providing teachers with reading materials, um, access to content on, on, on tablet, um, and um, uh, encourage teachers also to set up community of practice between themselves to, um, to see how to support each other. Um, from the student side, the project also recognized the need to support learners and providing English easy, easy reading books, um, not only the teaching and le learning materials, but also storybooks, short stories that um, contextualize uh, storybooks, uh, providing tablets preloaded with English content, um, as well as loudspeakers to increase um, exposure time. So both teachers and learners can use this, the, the, the speakers. Um, the project also established Girls Empowerment Forums and establish English clubs so that girls and boys together can practice, um, can provide peer support, can listen together, can borrow their tablets and the loudspeakers, listen to songs, listen to texts, and help each other outside of classroom practice. Um, when it comes to working with the ministries of education, the project has been sending them, working with them, and uh, uh, to support struggling teachers, following the initial trainings that were provided. And we developed a competency framework so that the supervisor can understand where competency framework. Um, and also identifying potential in-service training opportunities beyond what the project can, can provide. For instance, there are some of the projects who are trying to help teachers both through in-service and pre-service training and providing more reading materials and opportunities. Um, the project's online uh, evaluation, which was concluded recently, uh, found out that um, the project's intervention led to significantly higher gains in English literacy over and above the comparison groups amongst girls who were originally out of school at the baseline and have since then enrolled. Uh, so this is interesting because this shows that those teachers who were trained by the, by the project actually were able to have good ways of helping new learners um, to acquire the basic foundational skills of English, unlike their older sisters or their older uh, brothers. So this is really uh, important. Um, uh, girls who were originally enrolled in subjective schools had higher gains than their peers in comparison schools, but the difference was not statistically significant. Girls participating in leadership clubs uh, had the highest gains in English literacy in relation to the percentages point, highlighting the importance of spaces to practice English and peer support group. As you can see here, um, 
the, the, the highest gains were observed among the girls who had the lowest scores at the baseline, a difference of 9.2% over and above the comparison group. Again, the fact that the project really uh, uh, put a focus, for instance, for the Somjopi project, the most marginalized and, and, and at-risk girls were the pastoralist group, because this is the, 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 this, the, the northern part of Somalia. So the project, in addition to this focus on supporting girls, also worked and did a lot of work with the communities of the parents on identifying pastoralist girls, helping them, uh, doing awareness raising about house course as a lead and um, uh, um, my, my previews, uh, creating awareness about the factors impacting girls learning at home and how families can support girls learning at home. So on the other uh, side of the of the of the picture, the ages project, the uh, um, the leave no girls behind funded project, which operated in the southern part uh, of Somalia, had another uh, kind of challenge when it comes to language of instruction, which is the need for bilingual education to support marginalized girls. What the ages baseline found was that uh, the first cohort of 24,000 out of 24, almost 25,000 girls identified by ages, 40% spoke the Afmai language, uh, in, uh, which is a minority language. And, uh, and also uh, the baseline findings indicated that girls speaking a minority language, mostly the Afmai, had an average literacy score 12% below the average, the overall average, while their average numeracy score was 5% below the overall average girls whose mother tongue differ from the language of instruction had an average literacy score 47 percent below the overall average so this doesn't only reflect the fact that um, girls are from a minority uh, group but it also shows that um, girls are really struggling uh, even within the within the society and one major finding from the baseline by then was that the intersection of being an adolescent girl, a minority language speaker, and belonging to a marginalized ethnic group was associated to 29% of the girls from those groups uh, facing um, violence from teachers, corporal punishment in particular. And these girls and, these, and their families were really living uh, and facing severe poverty within the society. So what did the project do um, in terms of mitigation and uh, um, Adamata, you're starting to cut out a little bit. So I wonder if you could just try and finish in the, in the next minute or so. All right, thank you. Thank you, Liz, and sorry for the technology issues. So just showing, I think, uh, I think I dropped a little bit. Um, so the project provided training engage communities um, and also establish girls forums and brought up the issue of uh, the need for supporting um, uh, and, and also the need for uh, multilingual education strategies and approaches. This is the findings from the most recent um, conduct, most recently conducted midterm mid evaluation of the project. And we can see here that um, girls from the minority group are catching up. So they are they are a little bit above the benchmark. So they are at 23.8 percentage point uh, in their um, acquisition of the, um, their Somali uh, literacy skills. Um, so this is still not huge, but it's the gap uh, is closing. So which means that the approach that the project is using are working, identifying these girls, supporting them and working with different stakeholders 
to cater for their, their, their specific needs. I will stop here. Thank you very much. I welcome any questions. Thank you for your patience and sorry for the technical uh, challenges. Over, over to you, Liz. Thank you so much. Um, and just before I, I um, ask Amira to, to provide some reflections, I just wanted to highlight one of the key things from, from that project um, is that it's a different dominant language. So a lot of the um, contributions that we've got really focus on English, and I know Amira will be, will be particularly talking about English, but it's not only the use of English, it's the use of any dominant language. Um, that children um, do not fully understand. And that does come across um, in this. And we've got a few other um, examples across the policy brief that aren't talking about um, English. Okay, Amira, I know that we're getting a bit short on time, but please do, do take, take the full time to um, provide us with your reflections. We're really looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. Thank you, Liz. I'm going to uh, uh, share this in a few minutes because it's basically uh, my uh, reflections. Um, so this uh, part is divided into two sections. The first one is basically my personal reflections being uh, a student in an English language classroom. And the second part is going to be about my uh, current research on EMI in higher education here in Egypt. Uh, and what I really uh, like about uh, the event today and this research in particular is the focus on uh, the quality of the experience, not just the numbers, because we tend to, when we talk about girls' education in general, focus on the number of girls getting access to education and how to increase that number. But uh, I think the focus today on this uh, topic of the experience, how can we improve the experience, the quality of the education, for girls inside the schools uh, is very important as well, uh, because it doesn't uh, suffice to just to provide the education for the girls and they suffer inside the classroom for different issues. Uh, I will share first my uh, experience being uh, a foreign language student uh, in a language classroom in Egypt. Uh, my uh, first experience and exposure to English uh, as my first language is Arabic came through my primary school teacher, who was a young female teacher. Uh, she used to teach us all subjects, not only English. And uh, I remember in my classroom, uh, we only were three girls. Most of the classroom uh, was uh, boys. And uh, I and my fellow girlfriends used to actually like, sit in the front row. Uh, we uh, wanted to be heard by the teacher, and this was uh, our way of getting uh, our voices heard to sit uh, in the front. Our teacher actually was very kind and nice to us and she used to come closer to us whenever we wanted to say something. Uh, she never also uh, pressured us to speak in class in front of the boys uh, as uh, she, uh, for some reason, thought that we might maybe make mistakes and get embarrassed in front of the other boys. Uh, so that was really my favorite class because I didn't really have, I didn't have any pressure to speak. And um, I liked that class and it was actually one of my favorite subjects. Uh, the idea that for us as like uh, girls at this young age to get exposure to language that is really different from uh, our mother tongue in school and especially that my parents did not speak English, uh, it was very challenging because uh, the experience I had in the classroom was a little bit different from that of the others, especially boys. Uh, and the research actually says that uh, the experience of girls inside the language classrooms 
differ from that of boys in terms of the silence uh, moments. Uh, also, in terms of how the teacher perceives the girls' participation versus the boys' participation. One thing that I remember uh, that I used to do is never to ask questions because my teachers had this assumption that I really uh, did understand everything, being quiet and being uh, uh, like uh, very obedient. Uh, unlike the boys who used to cause troubles in the classroom and get more attention from the teachers, and as a result, would be asking more questions uh, to make sure that they are following the lesson. So uh, in, uh, in relation to the experience of girls and talking about how uh, they get uh, the quality education inside the classroom, especially in classes where the language of instruction is different from the mother tongue, uh, we have a lot of evidence from research already about how challenging this is for uh, girls. And uh, in the low or middle income societies where access to education is dependent on social and geographical factors, uh, gender disparities uh, are very evident, especially in situations where the girls have to commute to school, uh, where the girls do not feel safe, maybe uh, spending time after school to study uh, with their peers and form study groups, unlike boys, uh, because of their gender, uh, then they are placed at this uh, advantage position. In some low-income contexts in Egypt, for example, uh, some state schools are uh, language schools, uh, or we call them EMI schools. Uh, in these schools, uh, the students get access to education using English as a language of instruction, but the challenges are many because they are not really well-furnished schools. Uh, they are not very expensive, so uh, families from low-income and middle-income uh, uh, level can admit their students or their children to these schools. Uh, at these schools also teachers uh, sometimes do not have the enough proficiency to teach these subjects in English. So they can switch to Arabic in the middle of the lesson and uh, they do not really get enough training to use uh, EMI in teaching. Uh, the idea that in these schools, since they are in low income uh, societies or contexts, uh, uh, they also uh, provide or they deprive the girls from their chance uh, in quality education since the parents uh, sometimes see that uh, student, uh, their children are not getting enough uh, education, quality education, they do not perform well due to these other external circumstances uh, due to the flawed system. Uh, so they would prefer for a girl to stay at home and uh, do the household chores while they would save the opportunity uh, of getting educated to their boys uh, due to gender stereotypes and gendered uh, roles, of course. Uh, so these uh, schools do not really um, support the EMI education, but rather they place girls at a double disadvantage. And uh, in the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about my recent uh, research, uh, which is related to EMI in higher education. I know that we are focusing mainly here at uh, uh, the uh, other level of education, but I would talk about this because it is relevant. The uh, number of the girls in STEM schools and STEM education, uh, as we are all aware, is not uh, comparable to the number of boys. And uh, in my research, I look for the reasons why this happens at the, my university, where some of the students come from also low and middle income societies, uh, on scholarships to learn 
uh, in an EMI environment. And one of the findings of my research is about how girls cope with this uh, environment, especially those girls who did not really go to language schools uh, and uh, their proficiency in English is not uh, uh, like as is not really the one that would be uh, good for them to get them admitted into the university without uh, financial aid. So they, um, many of them said that this was actually the last option. They did not prefer to go to STEM because of their language proficiency. And this was a result of their education in these uh, MI schools uh, and also schools where the uh, MI system was not implemented as it should be. So uh, this would actually place uh, those girls at the end of the road, like even they would actually stay home and not really uh, go to university or they would still suffer in their options uh, to which field they would join based on the language barrier that they want to avoid actually. This is the last uh, point that I would like to share and they shared it also in the policy brief about uh, some recommendations based on my personal experience and also my research on EMI in the less favorable context that we would like to uh, recommend reconsidering, reconsidering and rethinking uh, the EMI implementation in these contexts, especially where the gender roles are evident and prevalent and the choice of the girl to go to school is not really a luxury, but sometimes it is sacrificed for the uh, reasons that uh, were mentioned by my colleagues here, economic and socio economic situation of the girls and the families, uh, and to also uh, try to think about this implementation in regards to the girls' role in society, not only their proficiency, uh, and train teachers to know how to use multilingual pedagogies, not to switch to L1 without the knowledge of its effect in the classroom, uh, not to deprive students, whether boys or girls, of the opportunity to get quality MI education. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amira. I'm hoping that all of our contributors will now be able to come back on screen, cameras back on if their internet allows. And um, we have a few questions, more questions in the Q&A than I think we'll be able to get through now. So if I could ask panellists to also if there's any questions um, that you have, a really good answer to to please just to type into the q a um, as well but it's great to see the real engagement um, in everything that we've been we've been talking about so if um i can start by asking fadamata we've got a question that's quite um specific to what you were talking about in um the work related to developing girls leadership and skills and um around girls clubs and girls empowerment forums if you could just talk a little bit more um, about that and the role of language and whether that's a space that's just for girls or whether it's for girls and boys. So if you could just talk for, for a minute or two on that, please. Sure, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, the recently closed Sambjepti project is um, the impact of uh, uh, the girls' empowerment forums on girls' learning outcome in general, not only um, their literacy outcome, but also their numeracy skills. Um, and girls' empowerment forums are uh, clubs that CARE has been um, establishing in different contexts, and we have adopted a model from India, actually, uh, to the Somalian context, um, where girls um, are self-selected leaders 
are trained and with the support of a mentor uh, come together and develop an action plan and through the year they're supported to put in place uh, their activities and they meet on a weekly basis um, to go through different thematics uh, and of course it's an opportunity for social socializing it's also an opportunity for peer support uh, but most importantly, it's also an opportunity for girls to discuss issues about leadership, life skills, issues around um, uh, gender-based violence, issues around uh, house calls and, and security and safety for girls. So those social networks and for girls a safe space to, to bring up their issues, um, and that is translated into their ability to speak in the class, ask questions, because one, one thing we found initially was both girls themselves, but also the teachers were expecting girls to be quiet. Like we had a lot of time, this quote from teachers, a good girl doesn't speak. A good girl is the girl who is quiet and sitting out there. So it's okay for girls not to be, to be uh, noisy. Um, so these clubs offer girls that capacity to go beyond their, their shyness and their discomfort in, for public speaking and start speaking in the class, raising their issues. And when they are struggling with issues, uh, as I said, during the, uh, the meetings or even outside of the meeting, they can get uh, peer support. So that's really important. One other uh, uh, thing we did is we went through the Girls Empowerment Forum and now we also established the Boys Empowerment Forum, recognizing the importance of working with young men and boys, uh, but also recognizing the fact that boys have their own issues like um, you know, toxic masculinity. And in the case of Somalia, for instance, um, there is this culture of chewing cut. It's a, an addictive substance to which boys are initiated at a very young age because it's male dominantly consumed by men and boys can get into it at a very quite early age. Um, and also immigration, as you know, very young boys are drawn into immigration and are the one affected by that. So we had to also developed particular model for the boys and get the girls clubs and the boys forums to work together. And we are really seeing the impact of that uh, through the SOMGFT uh, endline evaluation. And it's a model that we are replicating across all the projects we are doing in Somalia in other contexts, even here in, in Rwanda. Thank you. I can share links in the chat box of some of the learnings from the SOMGFT endline evaluation and uh, uh, Alicia is also on the call if she wants to say more about it. That's great. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. Um, and now, bearing in mind time, I, I wondered whether um, we could finish with a question, which is which is a very challenging one from, from Rona, which is um, she wonders where we think attention is best spent. Is it supporting language supportive pedagogies across the curriculum? Is it strengthening the teaching of these dominant languages, such as English as a subject, when they're also used as a language of instruction? Or is it in gathering and sharing evidence to campaign for and influence policy to ensure children are learning in a familiar language? If, if we had to choose one as our, as our priority, I wonder, Alicia, I wonder which one, if I forced you to, to think about which of those, which would you say, do you think? I again I'm I'm hesitant for the same reason that I think we'd all be hesitant to sort of try and single one out when I read that question what I will say briefly and then I, then maybe we can come to other colleagues is that we we found 
something less about the what, but the when, the timing of when that support is most critical is, is quite interesting because we because we track girls as they move from one transition point to another. And often the language instruction switches at the primary to secondary level or sort of it deepens as you progress through different grades. I think there's also a question that I'm sort of uh, thinking we could add to Rona's around you know, targeting the timing so it is most effective rather than attempting to provide that across all, all grades. Yeah, what, yeah, but interested in that, what others think. Amira, what do you think? I think I agree because I, the problem was never about using the L1 in the classroom, but I think in the intervention of the teacher, like when to use it. And sometimes it will just use as like a simplified way of instruction without really uh, paying attention to how the students interact to this or how much learning is happening through using it or not using it. So I agree about the idea of when actually, this is uh, something that, or a piece of knowledge that is missing. Alina or Aloisi, do you have anything else that you would like to add to that? Maybe lost them, maybe the internet connection's just gone right at the, the end. And I agree with, I'm also hesitant. It's really difficult to, to choose um, one, one particular one. I think that I would always want to advocate for multilingual. So not necessarily about just shifting from one language into another, um, but, I also recognize the policy constraints that we're working within. So some of the other questions in the Q&A have been, well, surely it just makes sense. Why, why would they be learning in English? And, and one of my colleagues, Harry Kuchar, has, has given a reply to give some of the, it's a very long story, but some of the historical and political um, reasons for why policies get, get made in, in this way. So, I'm really aware that within those constraints where these decisions are not necessarily made on educational grounds, but more on, on political ones, just being able to find small ways that we, we might be able to help the children that are right now, this moment, sitting in classrooms where they don't really understand what's going on. And for me, that would be around language supportive um, pedagogies and really good transition so really good support, particularly for, for the girls and boys that are, are struggling the most at that transition point. And just really recognizing that, that it exists. And so children don't feel that shame and embarrassment sitting in the classroom, because it's not just about their outcomes. It's also for me, it's so important that we think about the experiences um, that, they're, that they're having in those classrooms. So I just want to finish um, by thanking you all again so much. Thank you to all uh, everyone that came along to listen to your questions and, and, and in the chat, I will try to follow up um, with, with those that we weren't able to, to get to. Um, please get in touch with us. I hope we've got a link to the, the webpage for our project that would have my um, contact details in it. Those contact details are also within the policy brief and I'm sure others here and would also be very happy to be contacted to carry on these conversations. We're really passionate about what we've been talking about today. And thank you again so much to Alicia, to Aline, to Aloisi, to Amira, so many A names apart from Fatimata. <laughs> thank you all so much. It's been um, a real privilege to have all of you um, contributing today. And even though it meant we had a few technical issues, so wonderful that you're able to join us from um, different parts of the world. 
that's one of the really lovely things about being able to have online sessions. Thank you all one final time. Thank you, Liz. And thanks, Leila. Congratulations to Leila. Yeah. Oh, yes. Thanks to Leila. That's a lovely way <laughs> to finish. You. Leila was such an important part of putting this policy brief together. So thank you for reminding us to, to also say thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank Have you a good day, everyone. Thank Bye. you. Bye.